This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Rangers under-18 coach Cameron Campbell. He discusses his journey into coaching and some of the challenges he faced coming from an academic background, his work with the under-18s in their individual development, and how to prepare the players for high-pressure situations. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy Perfect. So, Cam, listen, really appreciate you um, jumping on. Obviously, I know this has been a little while in the works and our schedule's conflicting, etc. And um, obviously, you've been out to Ghana last week, which we'll, we'll touch base on. But how are things? You're in all okay? Yeah, everything's good. Uh, pleasure to have on and thank you very much for the invite. But you know, we're getting that three-week period just now, as most coaches will testify to, where things slow down a little bit. It never stops. Um, I said to you this morning, we're still on the phone looking at tournaments now and selections and the mad world of football it never stops but it does at least slow down for these three weeks so it's it's nice to, to refresh. Perfect so uh, for people that maybe don't know you haven't come across you etc you just want to explain kind of what you do what your role is and yeah I guess a brief overview of what your current current job is. Uh, yeah so name's Cameron Campbell I'm currently a coach working in Scotland I'm the lead coach for Rangers under 18s which is a phenomenal job, one that I really love, and I'm sure we'll get into details with that later on. And uh, my background is probably slightly different to most coaches working at that level, uh, especially from my experience of when I come up against other 18s teams. A lot of the coaches seem to be ex-professional football players, slightly older. So I'm very fortunate, and I realise I'm in a very privileged position that Rangers have entrusted me at such a young age and not being an ex-pro to go and do something a little bit different and lead their 18s programme. Uh, I have spent time in Ghana coaching, which again, few folk have done, but one of the best experiences of my life and something I'm so glad I, I took the risk to go and do. But also the fact that I didn't play professionally meant that I went down the university route. So I actually went and did a sports science degree and I'm currently just finishing up my PhD in coaching as well. So I like to think that I've got, whilst I lack some experiences that you would normally uh, associate with being a, a lead coach at the professional development phase, I also have a few experiences that other people don't, and I think it works really, really well in terms of that multidisciplinary staff that's been put together, especially at the club, where right now we have four PDP coaches at Rangers, and I think we've been recruited really well because we're all completely different, and we work really, really well together. So that's probably the, the brief as I, I could go there. Yeah, perfect. I think first question is a really interesting topic at the moment regarding you know routes into coaching staff. Why do you think it was that you were given the opportunity in, I guess, quite a prestigious role up at Rangers in that PDP phase? So, a little thing. So, this is obviously a combination of many different things. So, one thing I believe in massively is the dots theory. And I heard about it about five years ago. And it, it's probably the first thing that really, really made sense to me. Because when I first started on my coaching journey, I was so obsessed with trying to work out what was next and what I had to do and... You can't predict football at all. Players can't predict football when they play and, and coaches and those that work in the game. You never know what's going to come up and who you're going to meet and what's going to happen that's going to kind of change change your pathway. So if I look back to the dots theory, it states, for those that don't know, that life should be about collecting as many different experiences and knowledge, uh, pockets of knowledge as you can. And then it's only when you look back that you can actually make those connections. So if I look back to Rangers, 
one of the big influences of me coming to Rangers was my relationship with Mike Bale, who was the assistant manager at the time. Obviously, now he's been appointed the head coach at Queen's Park Rangers, which is phenomenal for him and something that's well-deserved. Probably the best coach I've seen on the pitch, and he is very, very good. So we almost had a, a mentor-mentee relationship from the age of when I was about 21, and I was working in Aberdeen. So we'd kept in touch, and we spoke a lot about football and our philosophies and ideas. And I then ended up doing a presentation for the Rangers Academy on a topic that I was working on in Right to Dream about scanning and how I, um, by no means was it perfect, but I managed to create a, a data source where it linked measuring scanning with the players. And then I did something, I called it um, data integrated coaching. So we linked everything together. Uh, so Rangers asked me to come and present on that. And then off the back of that connection, then meeting a few of the Rangers coaches and the head of the academy, they then found out that I had a relationship with um, Mick and conversations from there went. So I actually came in as the under-18s assistant coach to David McCallum, who is now the BT manager at Rangers. Uh, and I did one year as assistant coach and got to know everybody and hopefully proved my value and my ability. And then after a year, I was promoted into the, the lead coaching role, which was as I say, a real honour for me and something that I, I don't take lightly because I know a few of the people that applied for the job and we're talking about people with not only much more experience in the playing and the, the age side, but also coaching. There was coaches that had uh, put an interest into the job that managed at first team level as well. So for Rangers to, to go with me was, was a real honour and a privilege. I think we'll obviously touch base on the, the, the scanning work, etc. because I think it's a really interesting top of the conversation for a lot of people at the moment um but leaning a little bit more on that from your perspective did you face any barriers um coming into that role in in terms of you know perception of people you know got a lad who's coming that hasn't played there's quite a lot of the one as you, as you mentioned earlier were there any particular barriers either internally or i guess more so externally that you you face within that yeah, so internally, Rangers have been brilliant. I think Rangers have been quite open and uh, out front about how they want to be slightly different and more European. I think if you look at the European model, it's becoming much more popular. And hopefully a trend that continues is a trend like uh, McBeal getting promoted as the, the manager of Queen's Park Rangers, where clubs are now actually looking to youth coaches as those that could go and uh, work in the first team level as well, which has been happening for years and Spain and Germany are probably the the most well-known sources there. And I think there was a while where there was more Borussia Dortmund under-18s coaches working in the Premier League than there was English head coaches working in the Premier League because it seemed more exotic or more favourable to go and get a foreign under-23s or under-18s manager rather than going and looking at an English or a Scottish one for some reason. So hopefully that trend's, that trend's changing. But yeah, you, you do, you come across a lot of it. Um, I look a little bit younger than I am as well. And there's been many times when you either go to teams or you go to tournaments and I've been asked loads of times, oh, who's who's in charge? Like, who's the boss? And I've got to explain that I'm actually leading the group and their face and a lot of their first questions naturally after that is, oh, well, who did you play for? And it's like, well, I didn't really play. Like, does, does it matter? So it's the stigma still exists in football and it's not going to go away for years. And I think uh, in Scotland, a few managers were appointed that had no previous playing experience and the media came after them straight away for anything that they could. 
But I think now it's changing. I think if you look at the, the latest example up in Scotland, which we're closest to, in Tam Courts, Dundee United were brave enough to appoint Tam Courts as a manager who isn't that old, um, but has no previous playing experience. So again, I hope it's showing there's a, a new trend in, in the UK and British football that they're actually now going to start trying to appoint the best person for the job and not maybe the most well-known person for the job. And in terms of positives, because I think it's important to focus on that, what positive does, um, what, what positives come up in terms of experiences you've had that might be different to uh, people that have played in the game or things you can go in and challenge because of the way that you've grown up and the experiences you've had through university or right to dream and all those other bits? Yeah, I think both sides have pros and cons. I've worked with a lot of coaches that have done both pathways and I don't think there's a, a right or a wrong way, but I think it's about the individual and how much time they're willing to go and put into to taking up what their weaknesses would be. So obviously not playing at the highest level myself in terms of professional in a Premier League or a Champions League. Uh, my coach that I work with under teens level has played in the Champions League and has phenomenal playing experience of being in a change room and everything else. So it's about working that out. So for me, I became obsessed with analysis and watching games and trying to think differently. And again, I think something that is fundamentally wrong within the, the British system is I don't think we're encouraged enough to challenge norms and instead of being told something. So the, the latest one just now that's quite widely in coaching is the blocking. So for years, people just accepted that shots went through people's legs and you heard commentators going, oh, he's so unlucky, there's nothing he can do there. But in the last 18 months, there's been a lot of research done in terms of defenders adopting almost a goalkeeping style of block where they drop the knee and Real Madrid famously do this loads. And there's lots of examples of that now. And it's almost like, how how is football when there's been so much attention and so much quality devoted to it for the last 100 years in, in England and Scotland? Never thought about trying something like that. And again, something that frustrates me is that a lot of new trends in the game don't originate from Scotland or England. And I think we've got so many quality coaches that can coach. It's amazing that we don't trend set anything. And I'd love for somebody, or if it comes from Rangers or somebody else, to go and actually set a new trend within coaching. And it's not being a French coach or a German coach or a Spanish coach or a Danish coach that goes and does the blocking or goes and changes the way that defenders face or goes and changes the cross-location of passes and all this. So I think becoming obsessed within football and the, the analysis allows you more time when you're not playing to almost challenge things and go, right, well, is that the best way of doing it? Or has it just always been done like that? Can we go and experiment with a new way? And then the other benefit is the time not spent playing, I spent at university. So there, when I spoke about earlier on, uh, almost making a data-influenced coaching program, I would never have been able to do that if I didn't go to university and get the skill set to go and do a research project and learn how to collect data and learn and learn the importance of pertinent data and actually using data that influences either the player's development or the ways coaches we measure or train the players to help their development again. So all those different aspects, and again, I'll go back to those different dots, then add together that you end up in a job just now where you've got lots of different staff members you can lean upon to get their experiences, but you can then also bring your own bits where if it's the data or the the inquisitive mind or the critical thinking and, and all these different things, I think that helps. But again, I've also met coaches 
that have been professional players that have that mindset. So it's not an exclusive that if you don't play, you're like this. And if you do play, you have to be like that. I think it comes back to that individual and what what their makeup is. Yeah, no, 100%. I always say this. We've got an individual at our club called Lewis Carey, who is exactly everything you say. He's played however many hundred league games, mainly for Bristol City. He was captain there for a number of years. But in terms of a practitioner, very diligent, goes around, you know, exploring, is really open to ideas. And I think that, um, in my opinion, I think he's one that, you know, in the next 10, 15 years will probably end up in a first team manager's role because I think he's he really good, as you, as you said there. I guess what, one question that I do have is around that um, being able to challenge norms or, or challenge workings. So how do you, I guess, constructively go around doing that? So you can use the blocking as an example or, or scanning that you've done a lot of work on because you're going to have a little bit of survivor biaship in there of maybe players that if they're under 18s might have done this since they're under eight. So they think, well, no, I've had success doing this. I want to keep doing it. Equally, you may have coaches that did it as a player and, you know, we know how uh, superstitious players can be, etc. ex-players can be as well. So how do you go around constructively challenging those maybe with some of the research projects that you have uh, to your disposal? Okay. So I can give you a live example and talk you through what I do at Rangers, but uh, by no means is this the best way to probably do it. This is just how I do it, so do not follow if you're listening. So the way I like to do it is if I identify something or if I come up with an idea that I want to try, the first thing is to research it and really learn it and almost do the due diligence yourself. So it's pointless seeing a thing on the Monday night and first thing Tuesday morning, start speaking to people about it because they're going to ask you questions that you can't answer yet. And I always find that when you're trying to do something different, you've almost got to try and eliminate as many of the cons to it as possible. And if you start speaking about it too soon and you're not fully immersed in it or you don't understand it enough that you can go and explain it in the most detailed level, but also the most basic level, then people will switch off straight away. So if their first two questions you can't answer, then the idea is rubbish, even if the idea isn't rubbish. So again, the first thing would be to really research it, find out is it going on, who does it, why they potentially do it. We'll never really know because unless you can phone up the coaching staff of that club. And then the next stage for me is I always like to go to one or two really trusted trusted sources that I have. So, for example, the blocking one, uh, the coach that works alongside me is Stephen Smith. So, Stevie Smith, I don't know if you're aware of him, was a left back for Rangers, played in the first team, played Champions League, came down to England, played for a few clubs in England. So, a really, really top career playing at the highest level and also a defender. So for him, straight away, we're on the training pitch. I'm like, right, I've seen this, had this idea, what's your thoughts? So I would ask him. I asked uh, I asked Mick and I asked David Cal, who's uh, probably my line manager. But again, because of the way the PDP staff work, I have a really close relationship with him. So once I then ask those three people, I trust them enough to be open-minded, but also to challenge if they don't like it. So if they didn't like it, they would then give me enough questions for me to field. And then I could then understand that maybe my idea wasn't there. Because sometimes it is. Sometimes when an idea that you have, through your conversations and being challenged questions, you actually go, well, ah, do you know what? It's, it's a nice idea, but the practicalities of it doesn't work. And sometimes through the conversations and the ideas, they get stronger. And then once that happened, uh, at Rangers, one of the things to do really, really well is we have a, a really strong curriculum 
and a style of play, but it's always described as a live working document. And I think sometimes a lot of clubs say that is, but then when you ask when the last time they changed something in their live document, they'll say four or five years ago. Now, for me, football's that that uh, evolutionary and things change so much that I would be concerned if something hadn't changed every 18 months in a curriculum. So what we then do is we have a, a technical or a methodology group at Rangers and the head of each phase, so we've got the, the YDP, uh, the foundation phase, the PDP, we then have a separate school programme, the head of academy, head of coaching, they all sit on a technical board and they discuss ideas like this. So I was invited in to, the, to discuss a few projects. I, to save time, I had three projects. So I just delivered all three at the same time. There we then discussed the pros and cons. And of the three projects, two they really liked and they decided to introduce into the curriculum. And one they liked, but they decided that it wasn't for them as a club, which is understandable because the whole point of an academy and having a curriculum is making sure players are coached and trained in a way that best allows them to go and play for our first team. So one of the topics I discussed was the the body position and the facing of defenders. So I like, and something I worked in Denmark at FC Norseland was that the fullbacks faced in the way to their centre-back and not faced out the way. So again, a traditional coaching point in the UK is for a fullback is to see the ball and see the winger. They almost gave up seeing the winger and focused on the ball and they wanted to see your centre-back and see the ball. So you could control your line, control your distances and everything else. Now, we debated this one for hours in the, the methodology group. And where we got to was, some people liked it, some people didn't. Everybody could see the pros and cons for both. But the the determining factor was that the first team won't play like that. So it's pointless going to introduce something to 16, 17, 18-year-olds. And then when they go to the first team, they can't do it because it's the different things. So that's where the club needs to have one philosophy. And as coaches, we've got to understand that we might have loads of good ideas, but we still work for the club and it's important that we all pull together. So that's how I would go about identifying something, research it really, really well, speak to people that you really trust that will challenge you, not people that will say yes to you. There's a difference between trusting somebody and somebody that's just going to say yes and agree with everything you do. And then once you go from there, as I say, I'm really lucky at Rangers, uh, there's a platform for all coaches when they have ideas like this to go and share it to the methodology group and then depending on whether or not they see value into it and then depending on not whether they see that it'll help players get to the first team, it might or it might not become part of the curriculum. So that's something that I really enjoy working at Rangers in terms of still being able to express my uh, my critical thinking and my my creative ideas because it's something I think that it makes me different. And I think it's important that we all recognise in this game because there's so many people up there what makes you different as an individual? When you're looking um, at a new idea or a new concept, how do you know, I guess, from a personal work level, whether it's got legs or whether actually this is something that I'm really barking up the wrong tree here? Because um, I can imagine sometimes there might be something you see in a game. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to use it live examples will be easier. The way that Raphael and Fabio used to defend 1v1s where they used to turn their back is a very unique way of defending 1v1s. Um, and I, I can imagine you could, you could look at that and put a load of time and effort into researching if that has, you know, um, any positives or negatives and whatnot. 
but there may become a point where you realise actually this the negatives here far outweigh the positives before me even needing to go elsewhere. So how do you identify, I guess, using research or your eye and establish when actually you're barking up a wrong tree and this this is probably a poor example of something that's being implemented? Yeah. So I think it's got to be objective and subjective. And I think that's where your knowledge comes in. So if we use that example, because Virgil van Dijk does it as well, in terms of that defensive turn where he always turns quickest to the goal and that that means turning his back on the ball and it means turning the back on the ball. So it's something that, uh, again, Norsland do and I've worked with it. So the way I would do that one was if you identify and say it was only Virgil van Dijk that does it in the Premier League, he's the only one. I would try and get as many 1v1 clips as possible. So try and find 50 1v1 clips of Virgil van Dijk, work out his success rate. And then whilst I was working out his success rate, work out, is it really because he's doing that or is it because he's six foot whatever, athletic and technically very, very good? And then I would then try and find a comparable player that does it the opposite way. So again, you would try and find the same level. So again, this is where going back to university, had that thing. So you learn when you do research projects, how much validity and reliability is important in studies and everything. So to go and do a comparison, well, it would never be perfect in terms of an academic setting. You would then try and profile Virgil van Dijk in the Premier League, which is hard enough as it is, but you can find one or two examples. So probably Rudiger springs to mind in terms of his frame and his athleticism and he's a good defender. So then work out, right, does Rudiger do the same or different when he defends 1v1s? And then if you did that two case studies and you worked out that his success rate was either the same or better than Rudiger's, I would then have legs with that because then you're saying, well, if it's the same as, if it's just as successful, then why wouldn't you teach it as an alternative? Because some players may become better, some players may become worse if you give them that. But if you do it early enough, so if you go to the under 11s and 12s and start implementing that, if players then decide, right, this works for me and this works for me, they've then got four or five years to really go and develop that expertise within it. Where a lot of the time, and this is this is where I like the fact that we can actually change the curriculum at Rangers, because if it was down to solely just doing it when they get to under 18s, we're failing that player. Because 18's level, we're trying to prepare that player for the next step. And their next step sometimes is the first one. So it's way too late. And again, there's loads of quotes out there from Arshan Wenger talking about once a player turns 16, you can only really just enhance small areas of the game, especially technically. You can't really go and develop it. It's like speed. You can make it better by milliseconds and all these different things, but you're not going to turn a slow player fast. You're not going to turn a player that's got poor technical ability into amazing technical ability. You might turn them from poor to okay, but there's levels and there's there's periods in a player's development where you really need to go and target them. And then again, a quote that I love, and it applies to the 18s more so than anything else, is too often we try and pull players out of the stream rather than stopping them falling in 10 yards further up. And it's a case of instead identifying all the time what's went wrong when they're 15, 16, 17, and then putting in place a program to try and develop that we should be at 11, 12, 13. And this is why it's academy needs a strong program and not just a strong B team or 18s or 17s because it's too late often and you lose some talent at that period. So I think that's a really nice way of describing it uh, in terms of if we go in, so for example, that blocking one, if we go and then I decide, right, as an academy, we're working on that. I know fine well that Alan Boyd, who runs the foundation program, is going to have his 10s, 11s and 12s working on that. Now, it's definitely not going to look like what we'd work with on the 18s because they're 10. 
but they're still going to be introduced to the idea so their body mechanics get used to it. They can develop their speed, their agility, their timing, when to do it, at what situation, when the striker's far or close and, and all these different things. And that probably goes back to, the blocking one probably comes back to that question you just asked me there about when do you know if an idea's got legs? So there was a study done this season actually in Liverpool are the, the, the team in the Premier League that block the lowest number of shots because they've stopped running to the players that are shooting. So if you watch clips and if you look at uh, aggressive blocks and everything else, when a player goes to shoot around the edge of the box or from just outside of the box, Liverpool players no longer run towards him. Now again, traditional coaching in the UK, get as close as you can to the ball, blah, blah, blah. But what Liverpool have done is they've acknowledged the fact that if you've got two defenders running towards the shooter, most of the time, the goalkeeper's are in block, so you can't see the shot. They then turn their body as they get closer, so they go from being a wall to being a really thin object that can go past them, and the number of deflections that hit off that player to then go in increase. So they actually would prefer the defender staying 10 yards away, dropping the knee, becoming a real barrier, and allowing the goalie enough time to see the shot rather than running up. So over the course of the last two seasons, Liverpool's stats in terms of blocked shots has gone down and down and down, but their stats of shots conceded from the edge of the box has gone down and down and down as well. So again, they've they've researched that clearly, had practice, and then got some evidence to back up through their data. Yeah, I think that's a really nice collaborative approach because imagine you said it does defy conventional wisdom, normally what your centre half's going and getting kicked in the head or something like that. So I think that's a really nice way of, of collaboratively putting putting those ideas together. Um and how do you then get feedback off the back of that? Because obviously, as you said, it is a collaborative approach. It then goes up and down the age groups. So um, you're going to get loads, probably live examples of your under nines, under nines giving it a go on, 12s giving it a go on, the 15s. What does the feedback process look like for you guys as a, like, I guess, as a methodology group, as you mentioned earlier, to figure out, okay, well, here's some of the pitfalls we've found that the younger age groups are actually, yeah, we're seeing real success with it and it's something that, we're going to carry on with what does that feedback loop look like yeah so in the first instance it's about <clears throat> the education process so again it's not fair to go and throw something like that to coaches that have never coached them before so you've got to actually make sure the coaches understand and we can speak and then again because there's so much knowledge in the room when we speak to our coaches sometimes they have questions that haven't been answered before and sometimes as well when you're doing a brand new idea you've got to be honest and go you know, guys, I don't know. Like, we, we need to go and try this. So if it's going to be a brand new idea that only a few clubs are doing in the world and it's not that research and it's not commonly done, you've then also got to have that wee bit of honesty and vulnerability where you say, by the way, this might not work. Like, we might go and do this for the next year and although we've done our research, we've done our planning, we might decide after a year that it's actually not for us. It's not for Rangers Football Club. And it's got to have that bit of trial and error as well and I think it's wrong and I would be very, very sceptical if anybody ever stood up in front of me and went, I have all the answers and I know every question. So every question you're going to ask me, if you've got an answer for it and you believe it's 100% correct, I'd be very sceptical of that. But then the feedback would be obviously from the coaches to us and then they would take it again. That methodology group sits once a month. So the methodology group, because it's the, the leads in all the phases, they speak to their phase coaches every night when they're on the pitch. They either deliver with them or they're viewing their sessions and so they would come back with enough collective knowledge to then go, right, well, we've been doing it now for two months. This is what we see. It's working really well. We've come up against this problem or normally it's scenarios. 
we've filmed this scenario. What are we doing this and this? So if you look at the blocking one, does the angle the striker run then depend if you block the front post or the second post? So if you've got a right footed winger playing on the left foot, so a Raheem Sterling type, and he cuts in, do you want the drop block, the knee block, to be blocking the front post or the back post? So that's a good question. So what do we think as academy? So we then have a thought process. We speak to the goalkeeper, uh, the goalkeeping coaches as well, because part of the reason we're doing this block is we want it to become a barrier to make the goal smaller. So the goal going from eight foot to four foot or five foot if we can. So again, we then need to have that approach of, right, so if we're going to cut in from that angle, do we defend the front post or back post? If they're shooting centrally and you've got the choice to go left, uh, front post or back post, because there's no really front post or back post if they're shooting centrally, what post do you go to? So does it then be determined by the goalkeeper? Does the goalkeeper need to then change his communication? So once you start implementing it, all these different aspects that you probably don't think about in the initial period then come up. And then it's just that evolution of, right, how do we then solve that problem? We'll go and try it and then we'll re reassess. And it goes back to, again, I'm, I'm going to show my my lack of retained information here, but is it the Gibbs model of reflection that you learn at university and it's like plan, do, review in the most basic sense? I think that's got to be the whole curriculum. And it doesn't matter if that's, you know, build from the back and the way you build. I don't, I don't care if that's your pressing. I don't care if that's your blocking. It's because football's so changeable. It should be plan, do, review at everything. And it might be that next month a coach comes up from under 15s and says, I think the way that we build needs improved and we can maybe tweak it like this. And, and that for me is how a football club should be run. No, I think that's a really nice way, as you said, of that just collaborative approach and getting getting feedback from everyone, which is really good. And obviously, you mentioned a little bit, I guess, around the identity of, of Rangers, etc. So, if I were to come and watch a Rangers set of fixtures over a weekend from you know the younger ages and the foundation phase all the way through to PDP, what would I guess the ideal be? What what could you what well, what would I expect when I came up to see from your teams, and what do you guys kind of hang your hat on if you like? Okay, so the generic answer that every club would say would be like you're dominant the ball and the way the way I like to describe it is and again, I stole this and I'll hopefully admit I stole this off uh, Mick and it's the way he used to teach it. Instead of in and out of possession, it's own the ball and own pitch. So if you say to a player, Listen, we're gonna we're gonna always control the opponent but then you start talking about out possession and you're just talking about running and everything, then you're not really given that connotation or that perception that you are that you are controlling it. Whereas when you talk about owning the ball or owning the pitch, it's always you owning the game as a player. So again, owning the ball would be in possession and and there we are exclusively about outplaying. And outplaying is either through individuals dribbling and things like this or your combination play. And your combination play, some people think your combination play has to be one twos. That combination play could be 5v5. It just depends on how you combine. So the most simplest way and the best way because oh, I like to keep things simple with the players, is outplaying because it, it captures everything. There's nothing that happens in the game that's not outplaying. But then it goes back to that education process of not all 1v1s are equal and not all 1v1s are the same. So a midfielder's 1v1s repertoire has to be completely different to a winger's 1v1 repertoire because they're going to be receiving the ball with pressure from behind and everything else. But when you speak to a lot of players and even players at like 16 most of the time, a one-to-one -to, -one to them is still running at somebody. Or somebody running towards them. It's not. It's not somebody side by side. It's not somebody behind them, and all these different things. So, in terms of owning the ball, that's what we are. We want to be high energy. We want to go after it. But then, in terms of owning the pitch, 
it's about making sure that we dictate what happens. Now, it's inhuman to press all the time. Liverpool do their best at trying it, uh, given the athletes they've got, and they can also make five subs now, which allows that change to happen. But it's also about having that identity with uh, when you're going after the ball, but then when you're not going after the ball. So always owning it and being aware of what happens. So if you came to watch a Rangers team, I would hope that regardless of who we play, and we've been very fortunate that we played in the, the UEFA Youth uh, Youth League this year, which is obviously just a mini Champions League under-19s level. And even in those games, one of the pleasing things for us as a coaching staff was our style of play was the exact same way as it was if we play a Scottish club on the Friday night in the 18s league in terms of if we play Sevilla or the champions of Sweden, as we did in terms of Hammerby, we played against them the exact same way, which shows that what we're doing at the younger age groups in terms of developing that mentality and everything else is bred through. But but no, we hope that it's exciting. We hope that it's high tempo, but we hope that it also, if we're talking about outplaying, you'd be able to stand for 10 minutes and find six or seven different versions of outplaying that you could then go, I can clearly see what he was trying to do there or she was trying to do there. And how does that get affected by the first team? Obviously, this season has been a bit of a change in terms of personnel and staff. And you had Steven Gerrard there previously, Giovanni Van Bronco's coming in. How does that affect the work that you guys do? Um, and if it does, how how much how much is academy curriculum based? Um, I appreciate you said it's kind of an ongoing cycle, and that's a live document. And how much of it is actually paying attention to the specific needs of a first team player? And that you know, if I'm trying to prepare a right back for that particular environment, it's very different for him if he's playing in a back five or a back three to if he's playing in a back four and the roles and responsibilities within that. So how do you manage that um, and that transition piece? Yeah, so depending on what age group you take would depend on the, the challenge or the differences you would encounter. So for, in an academy, so up to 16, nothing changes. So our academy curriculum is, it's not separate because that's the wrong word, but it's managed by the academy and it's based on the principles of the game, not a formation. So our, our academy curriculum is not based on 4-3-3 with 1-6 and 2-8, to be as specific as that. It's based on a set of principles in terms of attacking the final third. So what things do we look for for attacking the final third? So it's runners against the back line, it's maximum width. Who creates that maximum width? Doesn't matter. It could be fullback, winger, could be a midfielder going out there. So it's based on principles. So none of that changes. Where it starts to change is towards the PDP in terms of A teams and B teams. So if you imagine that our academy is very, very structured in a good way, coming from 10s to 16s, when they get to 18s, we then play around a little bit more with them because we know they've got a solid basis of principles that allows us to then go and change subtle things. So uh, under Gerard and Mick, uh, Rangers played a flat three, something that Villa's doing now, which makes sense, but they're playing a flat three midfield and they play with two tens. They don't have wingers because they believe their wingers come, uh, their width comes from their fullbacks all the time. So we ha we then had to try and merge that. So when it was uh, Stephen Gerrard and Mick that was in charge, one of the biggest things that we did from players going from 16's age group to 18's age group was spend a lot of time on their starting positions as a flat three and their starting positions as a narrow 10. Now we're doing slightly opposite because Giovanni Van Bronckhorst has come in and he now wants more 4-2-3-1. So again, the formation is still the same because you're just moving those three midfielders around and where the width comes from. 
the biggest impact in the squad is always going to be the B team. And I think it has to be because our B team tries to replicate the first team in everything they do to make sure that when that player goes around to train with the first team for the first time, the only thing they're concentrating on is themselves. They're not trying to learn a new position or a new skill or a new drill. They're just trying to showcase the best version of them to try and get them in the first team. So if we work the way down, the first team will always decide what they do. The B team will replicate identically what they do because we're trying to produce players for Rangers. That's our first goal. The A teams will then be that hybrid where we'll look at what the B team's doing and we'll look at what the 16s are doing and we'll also look at who's in our squad to make sure we get the best out of the players that are in our squad. And then from the 16s down to the 10s, they are then very structured in terms of what they do as well. So it works well that because we've got director of football at the club, I think that's a model that now is widely accepted within the UK. We know that there's a profile of Rangers manager. So Ross Wilson uh, previously worked at Southampton and things like that. He's now our technical director at Rangers. So we know that when Gerard left, the type of manager that was going to come in, and we know that when Gio leaves, because football people always leave one way or the other, somebody will come in and play a similar style. There will, of course, be differences, but they're not going to go and approach a 4-4-2 percentage football manager. That's not what's going to happen. So it allows us to keep that curriculum relative to Rangers, but still individual to the academy. And how do you challenge um, individuals and their development? So I'll try and give you a really live example of this. If you had um, a number 10, traditional number 10, maybe like a Coutinho, for example, who previously might have um, played traditionally just as a number 10 and sat in that pocket and liked to get on the ball and maybe out of possessions, roles, go sit on the floor, that's all you need to do. So then being asked to play in a midfield three, potentially, under Stephen Gerrard, where the roles and responsibilities are going to be very different. Probably, I'd imagine, the physical characteristics are going to be more challenging because there's going to be a level of rotation um, in terms of trying to create and utilise space, as well as, I guess, more responsibility against the ball as well in terms of you know, pressing wider areas or compact or learning when to step out, etc., how do you manage individuals that may be, to a degree, a square pegs in round holes? Um, and is there any way that you try and combat that at the younger age group so you don't end up with a scenario where maybe individuals are being asked to do roles that don't necessarily fit their characteristics or their character? Yeah, I think there's two sides to that. So if I go back to the 10s to probably the 18s, we wouldn't ever put a square peg in a round hole because we, we don't have to replicate the first team. So again, when Stephen and Je uh, Mick were here and we played with the narrow tens, the academy were still playing with wingers if they had wingers or if they had that player so they could do both because they weren't directly dictated to by the first team. Um, if you then go to the complete opposite and it's the B team, we did have players. We had uh, we had one player, I won't mention his name, but an international player under 21's level that is a winger. He was signed as a winger when he came in at 16. But because we were then trying to get him into the first team, it's then a case of, listen, to give yourself the best chance right now, you need to learn how to play a different role. And again, it's, I, th I think football's coming away from players being really, really set. So there was a presentation I watched and they talked about the hybrid of players these days. So if you look at Mbappe, for example, nobody really knows where Mbappe's best position is. Jaden Sancho, Jude Bellingham, 
the modern football player coming through because of different things, because of different structures and scenarios. And I also think because the coaching has improved massively in the UK in the last 20 years, players are now much more adaptable in almost this hybrid where everybody that's a winger can probably play 10. Most players that can play wing can also play as a nine, whether they play as a false nine or a up front nine on the edge of the shoulder. Most sixes can play eight. Most tens can play sixes. Most right backs can play centre back. And again, if their physical profile allows them, most centre backs, because they're now ball playing centre backs, majority of the time, can play full back. So I think we've come again in the evolution of football, we've come away from 10 years ago. Every single player probably was a square peg that needed a square hole. Whereas I think if you look at modern football and the players that are coming through now, again, just go back to Man United, I'm thinking about Jaden Sancho here. If you look at Jaden Sancho, Mason Greenwood, Marcus Ransford, so three English produced academy players, they can play anywhere in that front line. Winger, striker, probably as tens as well. And I think that's a really good sign. And again, Phil Foden at Man City. So if you look at all the younger players coming through in Scotland, We've got less coming through that's in the first team just now, but a lot coming through that's at the underage groups, but like Kieran Tierney and Andy Robertson. Andy Robertson can play left back, left wing, left winger. Kieran Tierney can play left centre back, left centre back of a back three, left back or left winger. So again, I think because of the way we're now increased and elevated our coaching standards, players are now much more adaptable, so they're not round pegs and square holes. But then if we go back to sometimes at the B team, there's a need to teach players different ways because... Otherwise, you're going to prevent them from getting into the first team. But then there's also a really nice bit from a coaching perspective I like to use where sometimes it's good to put them there to challenge them. So, for example, this season we had a, a traditional six that felt that he wasn't mobile enough and wanted to play with his athleticism. But playing as a six prevents us in our shape if you're playing a, a flat three midfield from really running anywhere because you don't want him running anywhere, because he should be sitting in everything else. So what we did was, for the first six months of the season, we played him as an outside eight. Now, he had some games where it worked really well. He had some games where he struggled massively. But again, as part of his development, I think that it's improved lots of his game, not only his running, but now he was more involved in 1v1s, both attacking and defensive. He was asked to defend in large areas of space and not tight areas of space. So I also think that there's an area, an area where, as coaches, we should actively try and look to play players out of position to develop different aspects of them. So if, I'll go back to that one there, if you have a centre-back that you feel could be athletically superior but isn't because he's not allowed to run anywhere, why don't you play him left or right back for four or five games at 14 and 15? Traditionally, if you look at it, the best sixes in the world used to play 10. And they got moved back because they ended up either not being quick enough or not having the ability to be that creative with the final pass. But what they can do is receive the ball under pressure magnificently. So you just move them to six. So why don't you, if you identify that you've got a really, really high potential six at 14, go spend six months playing as 10. So he can then develop to do it under loads of pressure. So then when he has to do it, when he's only got one player marking him, he finds it an absolute breeze. So again, I think sometimes as coaches, we should look to where players will be most challenged on the pitch and go and identify that. And I think that's fine to do as long as it's a plan. I think where too many coaches do it is they go, oh, we'll do it this week because it suits us. Or like our right eight's missing. We'll play our six there for one week and then moving back, keep this team strong. Whereas I think if it's planned and the player's on board and you identify, because again, 
football's evolved. The players that we coach now have evolved massively. We're now working with Generation Z. In school, they're taught to ask questions. They need a why. Players now, if they don't have a buy-in, simply refuse to do it or they'll do it half-heartedly. That's just who we're coaching. So again, if you're sitting down with the player and you're explaining to him, listen, I know or I believe, sorry, that your best position is six. And I believe that you'll have a future in the game as a six. But what I also believe is if we work with you as an eight, you'll improve X, Y, and Z for the next six months. Like it's going to do. And again, as long as you do that well, and it goes back to that research project, as long as you can convince people to come with you and you give them a rationale why it's best for them, then most of the time they'll get on board. And again, will it work? Will it not work? Who knows? Humans are very complex, but it goes back to that trying it. And how do you manage the, I guess, necessity for success and the necessity for development? So um, I know when we originally spoke about doing this, you had a week in which I think you had a cup final and then you had a game against Celtic. Yeah. Um, obviously, we'll come on to that in a minute in terms of managing the group around those times. But obviously, you want to have a level of success for, so your boys get opportunity to play in that European competition and get exposure to that type of talent and that type of different way of playing but also you are still in a development phase to an nth where you're trying to support them to make the next step of their journey so how do you as a staff manage those two things because if you play four or five players out of position you could be in a position where you're weakened but obviously you still want to be able to give them that exposure so that longer term that they feel the benefits of it yeah so the easy answer there is below 16s results genuinely don't matter for us and I know that's that's one. I don't mean that we don't want to win because if you ask any player whether they're 6 or 16, do you want to win a football match? They 100% want to win the football match. And again, no player in the Rangers system doesn't have an edge of competitiveness. And it's something that we use a lot in terms of the, there's a quote from Liverpool where it's never miss an opportunity to fire a player's competitive edge. So we do it in training, we do it in games. So without us directly inferring it as coaches, staffs, the players will put their own pressure on them to go and win games. Whereas all we're focusing on from 16 down is the development. The difference, as you point out there, at 18's level in the Calumon work with myself and the rest of the PDP coaches is we work for the most successful football club in the world. And if the first team draw a game, it's a catastrophe. Not lose, if they draw a game, it's a catastrophe. So we've got to develop players that if it's nil-nil in the 60th minute at Ibrox in front of 55,000 fans, and the fans start getting really restless because it's nil-nil, they need to be able to deal with that. Or even better, if they're getting beat 1-0 with 85 minutes to go, the fans still expect them to win the game. And that's been based off the fact that we do consistently do that at the first team level. So in terms of development, it comes back to, again, the coach knowing what they're doing. So again, is that a good idea to have four or five players at the same time playing a position? Probably not. Is there games where, and again, this is not to be disrespectful, but if there's games where Every league program, the game you play in the weekend is not going to be the same level because teams are at different levels in leagues. So again, it's maybe a case of identifying which games you would do something like that in and which games you wouldn't. If there's always going to be external pressures on the players, so something that we do is we talk about stretch, safe and stress games. So if it's a safe game for the player, for different varies, the team you're playing against, the position he's playing in, uh, he's maybe been with the B team for the last 10 weeks and he's coming back down. So he's used to playing it in front of 3,000 people because our B team's been getting some great fan attendances at some games. Can we find a different way of challenging them? So maybe that player's had four safe games in a row 
And we just decide, right, no, listen, he needs to be challenged in a different way now and we'll do that. So I think that goes back to being a coach. And this is where coaching experience can never be replaced because you need to make that mistake and learn that somewhere. So this is where you can have all the knowledge in the world from a textbook, going to university or doing research projects. You could have all the knowledge in the world from being an ex-professional player. But time spent coaching, working with players, being in situations will never be replicated. And that's why you need to do the hard hours now. Some people can do that when they're 18, 19, and they end up having loads of those experiences and that knowledge base when they're slightly younger. And some people can't because they're playing or they're working and things like that. So that's why everybody's journey is completely different and why age is the, the worst factor for developing or determining somebody's ability because you don't know what they've done in that 30 years. So I'm 30 right now. Nobody knows what I've done in that 30 years compared to another 30-year-old or what I've done compared to a 60-year-old or a 40-year-old because everyone's different. So it goes back to to managing that. So in terms of putting stress on them, part of your role as a coach is to place enough stress on them that they're either out of their comfort zone or being stretched, as we say, but also recognising that if the player's gone seven weeks constantly stressed and his performances have been low, accept that. So again, I think in coaching sometimes we really, really want to challenge players, but then we get really concerned that the player performance dips. <laughs> it's like you can't have both. So sometimes you do and it's brilliant. Sometimes you'll stress a player as much as you want or as much as you think's proper and they'll still be unbelievable at the weekend. You're going, oh, brilliant. But sometimes you'll stress a player and their performance level will dip and then we get concerned that, oh, oof, that was maybe not the right thing to do. Well, maybe it was the right thing to do, but you've got to acknowledge that development's not linear. People are human. And the performance changes all the time as development football anyway. So if you go and add a load of external factors into that player and his performance dips, it doesn't mean he's a bad player. It means he's a, a tough week. But hopefully he's learned a few things in terms of his performance and not just, oh, the performance was bad, so the whole week was bad. Well, the performance might be bad, but he's maybe learned to play in front of 3,000 fans or he's maybe learned that out of possession he needs to do more. So the next week at training, he works harder. So again, it's about constantly finding the motivation from circumstances. I think that's probably one of the the best and hardest things that we've got to do as coaches. We've got to try and turn every situation, whether it's a really positive one, a really negative one, or an indifferent one, to spark that player's motivation into the next day of training. Because something that we constantly have to remind the players of, and it's hard because the game is the showcase and it's the fun thing and everybody loves the game, but it's 15% of our week. So as a development team, which we are at 18s, if they're only ever focused on that 15%, they're missing out on 85% of development through the week where we're training. And, and again, we say all the time, if we genuinely believe that we have the best collection of talent at 18s level in Scotland, which I do, our training should be at a level that's the same as any game. So if we do an 8D8 in training, that should be the same level, if not harder, than if we play a game at the weekend if we genuinely believe that we're producing a level of a player that goes play for Rangers first team. And if once you get that mindset and you get players accepting challenges and everything else, that for me is when you start to see real growth within the players. No, I think that's a really nice way of framing it, actually. And particularly, as you said, with the position that you guys are in, everyone talks about making training harder than games at a weekend or games that you'll play. And you can be really purposeful with the players on that and say, listen, we're going to be purposeful in terms of the way that we're going to push you during the week because we want to make it so easier a weekend or easier at a weekend. Um, 
And also, I like the bit you said around the understanding that dips will come and maybe being purposeful of looking at your fixture list and going, well, this is going to be a stress period. So maybe we expect their grade to go from a, I don't know, in the times go from eight to a six or whoever writes on the game and stuff. So I think that, that's a really nice point in terms of actually you can probably track that that you can on an Excel spreadsheet if you wanted to create your own one and say, you know, these are going to be stress games for our players. This is maybe where we'd expect some dips and refer back to it when you come audit period, etc. as well. In in terms of um, preparing for those high stress games, obviously we mentioned before around the cup line and the Celtic fixture as well. Um, how would you go around, I guess, to a degree, finding the level of um, yeah, the level of arousal during the week? Because I can yeah. imagine it'd be very easy to allow everything to run away with them and be like, oh, we've got severe on the. It's Friday night and everyone's come to watch or, you know, we've got the old Ferg game and we've got 36,000 coming to our under-18s, you know, old firm game. So how do you go around framing that from the start of the week? And what would a week, say, for example, is on these high-profile games on a Saturday, what would your working week look like to try and support the players through that week? Yeah, so uh, just go back to your last one because I think it's really important. I think it's something that some people do but they don't follow through on. So see that? making training harder than the games part. Take Getting players to take accountability and also challenging their perception of self is huge. So sometimes if we do that, so say we've played a game on a Friday night and we're really hard at training on the Monday and we've made that point and we're doing an ABA. Sometimes, especially at the age and the level we're working at Chanel, it's about calling players out in front of each other, but also having that conversation. So depending on... And again, we'll all know this as coaches, the players like public feedback and like individual feedback. Asking them directly, if you've got a left back and a winger, right, is he challenging you more than the player on Friday challenged you? Or is it is an easier time? Because again, sometimes players have the perception of themselves that's not true to reality. So the biggest, the biggest phrase that we've used this year and all year with the players is expectation versus reality. And I love it so much because you can use it in so many different circumstances. So that expectation could be what the player sets on themselves, so you versus you. The expectation could be what coaching staff and the club expect of that player to play for Rangers. And the expectation could also be from the family members and from the outside world, their fans. So you've got three levels of expectations to go and fit. Now, of course, the most important one they should try and hit should be themselves. And then the reality, making sure that we constantly feedback. So again, going back to why I love data so much, going back to why it's really important that you call things out and you make sure you challenge perception all the time because until you have those conversations and it's amazing, see when you start having the conversations, sometimes players are quite aware, self-aware and they've good level and sometimes players are miles off it, both positively and negative. So I've sat with players before that have been doing really, really well and we are trying to push towards the B team and they sit and they think they're doing middle of the road or they think they're doing okay and we've got players sometimes that think they're in the top two and really they're in the bottom two because their expectation, their perception and what they place value on is completely different. So I think, again, you'll have loads of coaches across the country that will say things like, oh, training should be harder than the games and everything else, but it's, it's okay saying that, but implementing and making sure that it's lived and it's real is very different. And I think that's where the real coaching comes in. It's the same as anyone can go and watch a drill and put the drill on at the training session. The drill doesn't make the coaching session. It's the information, it's the way, it's the energy that's put into it. It's 
who you make sparring partners. So who do you, if you're doing a 1v1 drill, who do you pair up to go against each other? That's what makes the drill not the actual how far away the cone is and what the rotation is. So again, I think there's lots of differences when we talk about coaching in terms of doing something, but actually doing it effectively and carrying it through. So again, if we take that onto your question there, so how do we prepare players for a, a stressful week? So as you say, when we first started speaking, we had the, the cup final on Wednesday at the National Stadium, live on TV. And then we had Celtic on Saturday, which for anybody who knows Celtic and Rangers, old farm games are probably the best game to play in as a Celtic or Rangers player. It's just fact, doesn't matter if you're nine or if you're in the first team. Celtic Rangers games, it's one of the reasons you play for Rangers and Celtic. It's the best game. So we did a lot of things around the cup final. So we had uh, five days to prepare for the cup final. So again, we looked at it as a coaching staff and we first went, right, what do we need to do to prepare the players on the pitch? So we looked at owning the ball, owning the, owning the pitch. So we did a day on each. And again, that really helps focus us on us. So again, we played Hibs, uh, sorry, we played Hearts in the cup final. So at no point did we mention Hearts. It was always us owning the ball or us owning the pitch. Everything else was just noise. So again, that focus for the players to not overhype it or to not, to not say, because Hearts are a very good team, by the way. But we weren't going on the coaching pitch and going, oh, Hearts are really good because they do this. It was, we are really, really good and we're not going to concede because we do this. So again, making sure the perspective of the players was right. So same message, but the way you converse that and convey that to players is really, really important by the language that they use and the moments that they use. And again, going into real detail, choosing the video clips that you use as well to really either stress them and make them think different things. Now, I was at a conference once and it was... Uh, the old England rugby manager that won the World Cup. Uh, I forget his name, was it? You might be able to help me. Clive Woodward. Right, so Clive Woodward did a thing and he said that in the run-up to the final, he played every clip of the opposition in one and a half speed. So not so much that you could identify that he's playing it quickly, but it was quick enough to make the players believe that they were a lot quicker than they were. So little things like that. So if you're going to show clips... Now, they might have done something really, really well once or twice and they might have messed up eight other times. Just show the time they messed did it really, really well. So the players have to believe that they've got to be at the top of their game to go and get something. So again, using all these different, not tricks, but different psychology ways to try and get into the player's mind to try and best prepare them. So the first thing we did was we only spoke about us. We never uh, referenced the opposition. The next thing we did was we contacted every parent of the player and we got them to send in a little good luck message video. And we then put together a highlights package. So something that we do at the club is we use this you versus you mantra all the time. So whether it's an IPT, so they're individual player targets, whether it's a, a, a measure or a grade or a challenge, it's always you versus you. So what we did was we created a highlights package that best demonstrates the best version of them. And we overlaid a good luck message from their mums and dads and their grannies and granddads and their brothers and sisters or their girlfriends at 18. And um, and we played a video. So what we did on the day of the game was, uh, before we had pre-match, we gave them this video. We allowed them to all watch on their phones individually so it was personal to them. It wasn't displayed anywhere else. And they had time to digest that. They then had their food so they could then go and really think about the video so it wasn't too close to the game. And then when it came to the game, it was just a, not a normal game, but it's definitely not a normal game. Yeah, again, 
players aren't stupid, especially when they get to 16, 17, 18. When you start saying cliche things that mean nothing, you'll lose them. So it's pointless standing up and saying, oh, it's just another game, guys, because it's not another game. It's live on television. It's at the national stadium. All their friends and family are coming to watch. They've had to go through the process of getting tickets and people asking them things and, and doing media coverage, which we try and limit at 18s as much as possible because we want it to be all about the football and not the media. But for a cup final, they need to do media, they need to do match programmes, they need to do television interviews. So all those different things. Again, it came back to the message was really, really simple. Expectation versus reality. What is the expectation place on your, your teammates? So is that to go and make that 10-yard run to make a 2v1 instead of a 1v1? Is your expectation to never lose a runner or to never track your runner? Because it's impossible never to lose one because he might be quicker than you, but you can still track him all the way. Is it, as a winger, to always break the last line, not frustrated when you don't win the ball or get the ball past you? So if that's going to be the expectation, what is the reality going to be? So when you come back in here at halftime and full-time, is your reality going to match your expectation of what you had before the game and not to let the game pass you by? Because again, in youth football, all we do is we look to the future. So every meeting I have is... Like, what's next for the player? What's next? Where's he going to go? What's his ceiling going to be? What can you do in the future to improve him? Living the reality. So what's next? What's your next action? What's happening in the game? Not thinking on in the tech this might happen or in 15 minutes, half time is going to come about. So getting the players to live in the for the game in terms of the cup final, that's how we try to, to control it. Say there, we want to add pressure on them because if the first time they feel pressure, the first team, we failed. So they need to learn how it is to play with pressure. So that feeling of nerves or anxiousness in their stomach, can they play with that? Because they're going to have to learn to play with that at a point. Otherwise, when they make their debut and they've got 80 minutes to go and play like Alex Lowry did with pressure, they'll crumble and they won't demonstrate the best version of themselves. Thankfully, we, were, we played really well and we managed to get the results. That was a great moment for them. And it was great to see the guys celebrate because to celebrate with our friends and family and in the changing rooms is brilliant and that's really rewarding. And we were straight back in the next day because we had Celtic three days later back in to recover and in terms of playing in old farm games, the pressure there is probably more internal than a than a final especially in Scotland. The players have grown up with each because you come through four together, fifteen together and three or four players will come in and out with squads but the core of the group stay together. A lot of the time it determines uh, the league fixtures. So this year was slightly different because um, the clubs were separate in the league. But so every year in Scotland, who wins the Old Farm States, who wins the leagues? Normally the case. If you look at the last three seasons, Celtics went undefeated, Rangers went undefeated. I'm sure Celtic won it by a couple of points because their head against Rangers was better. Listen, I'm conscious that we're kind of at the time we've allotted for this. So I've got one last question for, for me. Um, and I might know the answer to this from what you've said so far. But who's um, the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why? That's a tough question. Uh, best coach I've worked with is obviously uh, McBeal. Just the level of detail. And you can talk about the football stuff a lot. Again, stuff that people don't see as the the human side to him or the side that he puts so much time and attention to everybody with it. He'd pick up and he would discuss things and even when he was at Villa and he left Rangers and um if I had a problem or an issue, 
he would contact me first. So if he knew I was going through something, he would go straight to me and I, I didn't have to reach out for him. So even being a human in terms of that side to it. So again, building relationships, which that's all coaching is at the end of the day is building relationships. So um, definitely Mick for on and off the pitch. Uh, the players one's hard, which is a good thing because it would be horrible if you were, if it was really, really easy to pick. Um, and again, probably the true extent of this is probably going to be known in five years' time because a lot of the players I've coached are still only 21 right now. They're the, the, the first players I've coached. But probably the one that right now is doing the most is Kamal Dean Suleimani, who is playing for Wren. So a Right to Dream graduate. Uh, I was fortunate to work with him for a short period of time, but a really, really phenomenal player. Winger, electric. For those that don't know, if you Google him or YouTube him, you'll have a really fun half an hour watching his highlights package. And he's one that I think will go to a top five league. I think he was very, very clever. There was interest from a lot of clubs when he left Norseland, but he wanted to go somewhere he'd play. So he's went to Wren in League One, which is a great shopping shopping window for, for all players and loads of players have come from that league recently. So I would uh, I would go with Kamal right now and and then hopefully as I say though in five years' time that has changed dramatically. Perfect. Listen, Cam, really appreciate your time. And I, I guess we haven't uh, caught up on half your journey or the right to dream type stuff. So maybe this is something we can catch up on, up on again at another point. But yeah, really appreciate your time. Fantastic conversation. No worries. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.